You guys there? Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 28. Yes, I spent four, maybe five weeks on four verses. Now I'm going to try to go for 14 today. So uh, be in prayer for me. Uh, let's read this and, and, and uh, we'll pray and get in. Now he was casting out a demon. This is Jesus, obviously, that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Let's pray. God, you, you will be triumphant. We recognize that there is conflict in the heavenlies and war on earth. Powers of darkness and your spirit on the move. God, we hopefully, even after a first read, see what That text says plainly to us. Your son is stronger. The strongest of the enemy's resistance is no match for your son. We gather on Sundays, the first day of the week, because it was the first day of the week. That you gained this victory. As the burial cloths came off. And the dead man rose. So we know here today, Jesus, you are alive. 
and you are mighty to save. And I am praying in ways I can't even really conceive, God, that you, you would come, you would open eyes in this room, you would soften hearts in this room, you would save sinners in this room. You would push back darkness and usher in redemption, salvation, joy for your glory. It's in your name that I ask these things. Amen. Um, So whenever I come to a text uh, dealing with Satan and demons and things, um, I am at once reminded that we are living in a world at war. A cosmos in conflict. Um, we live in America. And, you know, we drink our lattes in the morning, sit on the couches, enjoy relative peace, especially compared to the rest of the world. We might not realize what the Bible says about the reality, about the age in which we live. Namely, that this world is at war. That the cosmos, the creation, is in the midst of a conflict. The scripture could not be more plain. In the spiritual dimensions, regardless of what we see with our eyes, in the spiritual dimensions, there is a battle underfoot. From the opening pages of Genesis to the closing of the book in Revelation, there is clearly uh, combat uh, going on between God and the devil. Where did the, the, the serpent come from in Genesis 3? We don't even know. Where did the evil force that animates the serpent in the Garden of Eden even come from? So this, this conflict seems to predate even what we have in the biblical record. And we find ourselves here in this room, even in the middle of it. Peter would tell us that um, Satan is like a lion prowling around, seeking someone to devour. My girls, in particular Chloe, um, love uh, nature shows. And I'll tell you what, they're great, but if she's going to have a nightmare, here's what it is. It's one of those crazy things she saw, like a lion. It was like, usually it's like a cougar or something. It's going it's to be one of them chasing her, prowling around, coming to devour her. It is a nightmarish image that Peter gives us, but it is the reality in which we Live. There is a collision of powers, a clashing of kingdoms, a world at war. And the whole point of Jesus' arrival is to finally stomp out the head of the serpent and bring this whole mess, wickedness, evil, destruction to an end. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's 1 John 3, 8. That's the sort of thing we see happening again here in our text for this morning. Jesus is entering into this conflict. There are four things that I want to um, uh, look at as we make our way through these verses. First, the restoration of a man, 
I didn't get very creative with these headings. I'm just outlining what I see and we'll draw from it. The restoration of a man, verse 14. The response of a crowd, verses 15 to 16. The reasoning of a king, verses 17 to 23. And then we'll land out on the requirement of a decision in verses 24 to 28. So let's uh, get to work on that. The restoration of a man, verse 14. It's interesting because a lot of times in uh, the Gospels, the miracle stories are kind of the centerpiece. They are the focus. Especially in the beginning of the Gospels, there's this focus on showing who Jesus is by way of these signs and by way of these miracles. But as the Gospels progress, and even now here what we see is the miracle really isn't the focus. In fact, this dude just kind of makes a quick cameo appearance here in verse 14, and then it's kind of off and running. What we really see is that the miracle here, the casting out of this demon, serves kind of as the backdrop for the conflict that will ensue between Jesus and those in the crowd who are looking in. But... Nonetheless, um, this man and his restoration at the hands of Jesus, I think, is worth our reflection for a moment. There was one thing as I was looking at that verse that particularly jumped out at me. I wanted you to see it. It's this kind of subtle connection that's made between the demon and the man who was, you could say, housing the demon, so to speak. Um, you know, what I mean is this, if you, if you notice... It's not just the man who is described as mute. As if the demon could speak well and good, but the, and he was shutting the man's mouth. No, what we actually see is that the demon also is described as being mute. You see that there in verse 14, if you look carefully. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. Now, how this demon came to be so, I do not know. But here is the point that I want to bring out. When you have been playing with the devil, you will come to look like him. You will start to take on the attributes, the image, the qualities of the demonic. When you are playing with the devil, you will come to look like him, and it will not be flattering. Uh, I love 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's kind of the positive side of this reality, where Paul says, listen, we are beholding in the face of Christ the glory of God, and as we do that, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. So we are, we are spending time with God and we're starting to look like Him. But then now in our text, you see the opposite reality to that, the negative side of that, namely that as you are kind of moving towards and influenced by the demonic, the satanic, you will be transformed from one degree of depravity to the next into that image. The demon was mute, so the man was mute. Now, to drive this home for a moment, I know that there are probably some of us here looking in the mirror these days, going, 
How did it end up like this? How is this really me? Like, is this really the way that I talk to my spouse now? Is this the new norm? The kind of jagged words, the, 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 the fiery eyes, the bitterness and the anger. Is this kind of the new norm for me? How did this come about? Or maybe you look at the way that you spend your money. You go, man, back when I was, you know, just saved in college, before you might say the world really sunk its teeth into me and all the cares and all the stuff of a family and this or that. Gosh, all I could do was dream about what I might do for the kingdom, how I might give for the kingdom, store up my treasure in heaven, sell my things and give to the poor so that God's name would be magnified, his glory would be seen. And that's what it was. Now I look in the mirror. Who is this guy? Lying in his pockets, planning the next vacation. What's the next toy I'm going to buy? The next car that I'm going to get? Me, me, me. What happened here? How is it that I now don't look so much like God, but like the devil? Uh, You've fallen under his influence. You've been in one way or another nibbling the bait, so to speak. You've forgotten the world at war. Start playing around. You're going to start looking like that. I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know what you see when you look in the mirror, so to speak. But I know a lot of us. All of us, in one way or another, are in need of the rescue that Jesus brings this brother in our text. When you step back and think about it, this scene here in verse 14 with this man is really an incredible picture of the gospel and God's sovereign grace, his willingness, his desire to come and rescue. If ever we were to think that the gospel is or Christianity is or religion, our religion is all about kind of cleaning ourselves up and making our way to God, presenting to him our good works and and, and receiving his affirmation or not. If ever we were to think that that's what Christianity is, verse 14 blows that out of the water. This is what Christianity is all about. Here we are, tied up, captive, enslaved, in bondage, Satan, sin, death. This man can't even cry out for help. Do you realize that? Like at least other places in the Gospels, like the, the lepers or, 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 or uh, the lady at the foot of the table begging, they could cry out for help and use their words. This man can't even speak. He can't even get Jesus' attention. His only hope is that Jesus would find it in his heart to initiate saving grace, to initiate rescue and that is precisely what he does and it's what he's done for you and me in this room moving towards 
We don't know how this man got in this state, but we certainly know he could not get out of it by himself. This is the gospel in the first verse of our text. And I love it. But let's move to verses 15 to 16 now and the response of a crowd. So because of the intervention of Jesus here in our text, the mute man speaks. Um, The devil, the demon flees. Uh, The mute man speaks. And you would think that a celebration would ensue. You would think that now, okay, things are about to get crazy up in here. They're going to throw a party. And I guess maybe you could read some of that into the end there of verse 14, that the people marveled. But what we really come to see is that there's this undercurrent of resistance, this uprising of um, opposition. These naysayers who are going to speak against what Jesus is doing here. Uh, In Matthew and Mark's account of the story, we're told that these opponents are actually of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day. And it comes as no surprise to us, because from the very beginning, those are the dudes, the ones you would think are going to be for him and the work of Yahweh, the Messiah. Those are the ones who've been pushing back on him from the very beginning. Now, what they push back on here uh, in particular is with two objections. Uh, Look at verses 15 to 16. Let me just read them to you. You'll see it. But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. I'm not going to go into Beelzebul, but the basic understanding is it's probably a reference to Satan based upon where Jesus goes next. Is Satan going to cast out Satan? Uh, Is what Jesus would say. So, Essentially, we understand this to be a reference to Satan as the prince of demons, the, the, the head of it all. So they say this, but some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. That's objection number one. But here comes the next group. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So you got some saying what he's doing is of the devil. And you got others saying what he's doing. Well, it's, it's not enough. We, we, we need another sign. One group is saying, gosh, whatever he's doing, we know that it's not from heaven. The other group saying, whatever he's doing, it's not enough to convince us. We need to see more. We need another sign. We need, I mean, I didn't, I, how can I be sure he was the one who really did? I didn't see any lightning coming out of his hands. I want to see some real fireworks. Then maybe we'll start to talk about this guy as the Christ. Now, Jesus is going to deal with these objections actually one at a time. Um, the entire, the entirety of our text this morning is dealing with the first one. Uh, but next week, Lord willing, will come and he'll start to talk about signs. He'll start to talk about that group that's saying, show us more, show us more. They say, I've shown you enough. But there is one thing in general I wanted to say here before we move uh, forward in this. And that is this. What both of these objections make plain for us, and hear me now, is that no amount of evidence will ever be enough for the person who is committed to unbelief. Did you hear that? No amount of evidence 
will ever be enough for the person who is committed to unbelief. And this is important for some of us because maybe even some in this room, we like to think that, hey, you know what? Gosh, I would believe. I would trust Christ. I would lay down my arms and and, and welcome him in. I would receive. There's just not enough evidence. I just haven't seen enough yet. Maybe if I could get another sign, maybe if I could get him to do this or that, I, I, I would see, I would, I, would, I would believe. But what we find out in our text here this morning is that man, no matter what Jesus is going to do, these guys are going to turn it back and say, oh, what was that? That's of the devil. That's not going to bring faith for me. What, what was that? Oh, oh, that's not enough of a sign. I need to see something more. It's never enough. Uh, such an opinion that just a little bit more evidence will con- convince us. What really that is, it's a severe underestimation of the corrupting sway of our fallen natures, a gross overestimation of the capacity and supposed objectivity of our native faculties, and it blatantly contradicts what we see so clearly in this text. When we say just a little bit more evidence... We think, man, yeah, I kind of am this objective, reasonable person. And if God shows me, I will grab hold. We have no idea the conflict that we're really in and the war that's waging in our souls and in our fallen natures. We'll get to that a little bit more later. But bottom line, there is always a way to interpret reality in line with your biases. Take the first group, for example. Let's imagine this. Imagine it went differently. Imagine Jesus goes to, uh, he sees this brother in need. Jesus has a compassionate heart. He goes to try to cast out this demon and he's unsuccessful. What kind of response is he going to get from the scribes and Pharisees then? They're going to mock him as an imposter. Ha! We knew. We knew you weren't the Christ. You talk about the kingdom of God. Where's the power? Look at you. You can't even help this poor man out. Pathetic. But because that doesn't happen, they're forced to take a different line of reasoning, right? Oh, so Jesus shows his power, shows his authority, shows his, his might and willingness to save. And then they got to go, oh, what do we say now? The devil did it. No way is he the Christ. We're not going to accept that. No way is that the kingdom. We're not going to accept that. That must be of the demonic realm. And so what you see is that no matter which way Jesus goes with these people, he will not win them. And this is why, brothers and sisters, and we need to take this to heart as well. This is why as the Gospels proceed, what you see is that Jesus slowly gets more and more quiet with certain individuals. Where he begins with engagement and discussion and back and forth and reasoning and things, he ends like a lamb led silent to the slaughter. He's not going to answer Herod. He's not going to talk to them about the objections that they're bringing against him. He's not going to talk to to Pilate about you know what's going on and make a defense. And Pilate's going to be in awe. Why are you quiet about all this? He's not going to say anymore, not because he has nothing to say, but because these people have no ears to hear. The hearts have gone stone cold. 
that we best take notice. As Jesus engages, as Jesus moves towards us, are we opening to him or are we shutting? Because there is no neutral ground when it comes to him. We'll see that more a little bit later. But I want to look now at the reasoning of a king. This is verses 17 to 23, the reasoning of a king. We're going to sit here for a little while. Um, at this point, Jesus is still willing to engage. He's still willing to reason with these brothers that are bringing these objections. He's still attempting to uh, show how their position is irrational, illogical. Doesn't accord with the facts of reality. He's still willing to come and engage in discussion with them in hopes of bringing them to repentance and faith in the truth. That's really what we see in these next verses. But look in particular at verses 17 to 18. But he, knowing their thoughts, and you just love that little uh, detail, uh, but he, knowing their thoughts, Luke is basically saying, just in case you didn't remember, Jesus is sovereign. <laughs> he knows their thoughts. But let's continue. Said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Now, you see his logic, I think. I think it's plain. It should be plain to us. It makes sense to us. He's saying, listen, if a kingdom is divided, you guys know your history. Kingdoms get divided, they fall. Households get divided, they fall. It's not rocket science. We get this. You could take my household, for example, as just kind of a miniature uh, uh, illustration. How do you think it's going to go? How do you think my household is going to function if, let's just imagine, we just finished dinner, the girls had one cookie for their dessert, they come up to mom, you know, who's maybe in the family room, and uh, ask her for a second cookie. Mama says, because she's a good mom, I'm sorry, you already had one, sugar's not so good for you, that's enough for tonight. But then they know, oh, wait a minute. There's someone else in this house we perhaps could talk into giving us a cookie. So they come to dad. He happens to be in his office or whatever. Hey, dad, can we have another cookie? What is dad going to say? His dad's not such a great dad. Got a soft spot. Want the kids to like him, whatever it is. Sure. Absolutely. You can never have enough sugar, especially nine o'clock at night, right? Let me, how's that household going to function? Divided household, how's that going to function? I'll tell you how it's going to function. I'll be sleeping in the garage, right? <laughs> Rightfully so. It's a divided house. It's not going to work. It's going to fall, right? How do you feel even about America these days as you turn on the news or you read, you know, the, the headlines and stuff? You feel that, right? The division and stuff. How does that feel? Like flourishing and success? Like a good strategy for moving the country forward? Or like, gosh, I hope we make it. Right? And so Jesus is coming out here with these guys, and, and he's, he's saying, listen, your, your, your point makes no sense. Why would Satan be attacking himself? 
You've seen what I'm up to. You've seen the wisdom and the love and the grace of my life. You've seen that I just restored that brother. And I just sent the demons flying. Why would you now attribute that to Satan? In what way, what world would that ever make sense? It'd be like Satan chopping off his own foot. Now, he will do that when he sends Jesus to the cross and sinks his fangs into Jesus' neck. He thinks he's winning the war, but he is, he is cutting off his own foot, so to speak, or sinking the fangs into his own neck. But he wouldn't do that willingly, knowingly, like this. So Jesus is appealing to their reason. He's appealing to logic. He's saying, your position is not logical, reasonable. Now, before I proceed, I want to make two observations at this point. So I think it's important as we engage with people, with the gospel, or even as we come to know ourselves more. uh, These things are important to note. Number one, faith accords with reason. Faith accords or is works together with reason. Now, that might not sound profound. Certainly, I think it's one of the implications we can draw from the rational argumentation that Jesus uses here. He tries to help them see that their position is not reasonable. Might not sound profound to us on the surface, but I think in our culture, especially post-enlightenment, a lot of us have kind of bought into this idea. Hear me out, you've probably heard this, maybe you even operate this way. A lot of us have bought this idea that there is this divide that kind of runs through the world, so to speak. Over here in this domain, you have things like science, You have things like reason and logic. But then over here, in a completely separate domain, you have things like faith, religion, spirituality. And the two don't really belong with one another. If you're going to be a modern, secular, atheist, well, you use reason and science. If you're going to be a good little Christian... Bible-believing Christian, well, you close your eyes, you plug your ears, you get on your knees, and you take that leap of faith. I don't care what the world has to say. I don't care what the history books say. I don't care what the science uh, textbooks say. Open my Bible, close my eyes, ears, believe. There's this divide that we often think exists. And so we as Christians can kind of cower when it comes to these sort of rational arguments that Jesus is entering into with these scribes and Pharisees. We kind of cower and and, and pull back. Just believe. But there are good reasons for our faith. Faith accords with reason. Jesus hasn't bought into this divide. He's trying to say faith in me is the reasonable conclusion here. Guys, your conclusion is illogical. It's spinning off into foolishness. We'll see a little bit more why in a moment. But stay with me here. 
In other words, I think what we see with Jesus here is that our faith has good reason, and their reasons actually require much faith. Like it requires a lot of faith to believe that Jesus is doing all that by the power of Satan, that Satan is killing Satan on purpose. So let me give you a modern example. Since I don't imagine many of us get into conversations about exorcisms like this and things like that on the streets. I, I do think you've probably heard this before. Um, someone comes up, you're trying to talk to them about God, talk to them about Jesus, whatever it may be. And um, maybe they've had a lot of suffering in their life. Maybe they've just read a lot of the news, see a lot of the stuff in the world. And they just kind of throw this one out there for you to deal with. And you just go, oh, I don't know. They say, listen, if there is a God, why in the world? Is there so much evil in the world? I mean, I can't believe in a God who would allow all of this evil. So just close the door on that. Let's be real. You don't have an answer to that. Let's move on. Now, there actually are a number of ways that you can engage lovingly with compassion, that mindset. But perhaps one of the one of the best ways to come at it is actually to 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 deal with it in its in its most fundamental kind of principle sense. That that position actually is fundamentally illogical or unreasonable. And let me show you how you might do that. You can take the question and respin it back to them in this way. If God does not exist, how do you even have a conception of evil in the first place? So the objection is, if God exists, how could, how could he allow so much evil? Therefore, I don't believe it. I don't think there is a God. Because of all the evil I see, we spin the question back and say, wait a minute. Evil doesn't make any sense in a world in which God is not. Let me show you why. We're looking at the atheistic worldview. We're looking at the idea that we've come from nothing. We've kind of evolved and there's no overarching reality. There's no absolute truth. There's, there's no laws written into the fabric of the universe. It's just chaos, meaningless, spinning forward, perhaps maybe progressing, maybe not. How in the world do you get categories of evil and good in that worldview? You don't. There's no such thing as right or wrong. It's all relativized. What is to say that me reaching out in that, in that worldview, based on those principles, that me reaching out and killing you right now is wrong if it was me wanting to survive? Survival of the fittest. Who are we to say that that was right or wrong? Good or evil? In other words, the very fact that we look out at the world and go, gosh, this shouldn't be. Or we all would agree looking back at like Hitler or World War II and go, gosh, that was evil. That shouldn't be. The very fact that there's something that rises up in our souls saying that is evil is actually an evidence, not of God's absence, but of his existence. That he's written something on our hearts about the way the world ought to be, about what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. 
And if you're really going to be true to this idea that God doesn't exist, then you have to say evil, good, right, wrong. It's all meaningless anyways, because there is no overarching framework at all. I probably lost 75% of the room. I'm sorry about that. We talk about it more. You do the same thing with science, with so many different things. What we come to find is actually in their efforts to disprove God. They've actually made a case for him. I know it's evil. How do you know it's evil? I know it too. It's interesting. Now, if this is the sort of thing that Jesus is doing with these men here, engaging with them, rational, uh, uh, rational arguments kind of with them, uh, we should be doing it too. We, as, as his disciples, should be open to skeptics, open to those doubting, open to opponents, and with compassion and confidence, willing to enter in, knowing that the Christian worldview can make the most sense of the facts of our existence the good that we experience, the beauty that we see, the right and the wrong, the conscience. Why do we argue about, you know, you should have done that with the dishes, what's fair, what's not fair. All these things actually prove we're living in God's world. It's very interesting. But I'll move on. Observation number two, unbelief runs deeper than logic. So observation number one, faith accords with reason. Observation number two from this scene with, uh, uh, with this crowd here in Jesus, unbelief runs deeper than logic. This is going to take what I said about the whole evidence piece a step further because Jesus has shown them evidence and then he comes and he says, listen, to reject the evidence in light of this position is illogical and yet the unbelief still remains. They're still uh, devoted to their position. No, no, no. It's of the devil. No, no, no. It's, it, 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 you cannot be the Christ. You cannot be what you say you are. Unbelief runs deeper than logic. What we come to see here in this scene with Jesus and these men is that there are reasons beneath the reasons. And we put forward all sorts, sorts of arguments and reasons why we might not want to come to Christ or couldn't believe what the church is saying or do this or that from the Bible. But really, if you press in, oftentimes there are deeper reasons lurking behind the smoke. There's something else going on. Something deeper even than logic, I would say. Here's the way I would put it. The clear but albeit scandalous teaching from Scripture is that beneath all of our reasons and logic is actually our desire. Or to put it another way, we often twist what we know to serve what we want. You ever been in an argument with your spouse or a friend or a roommate? You know what was true, but you spin it just a little bit. You ever done that? (laughs) We have a saint, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) We twist what we know to serve what we want. There's something deeper than knowledge, something deeper than reason, something deeper than logic going on here. It's desire. It's the heart. It's the stuff in the fallen nature. It's what we want that's fundamentally the issue. Jesus is a threat. 
He is a threat. You say, passive, nice, little lamb petting Jesus is a threat? Yes, because of his message. He comes in and he's saying, listen, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You are not clean. You are not okay. You cannot fix it yourself. You need me. You were created for me. Repent and trust. Believe the gospel. You need the cross. That's how bad your sin is. That's how great my love is. You need it. Repent. Believe. Trust me. The gospel is absolutely good news, but it has to make its way through bad news. And when you get to that bad news, most people go, I don't want to believe that. I don't want another king coming in. Jesus is a threat to my self-rule. He's a threat to my ego. I don't want another on the throne of my heart. I like sitting there just fine. Think it feels nice. So show me all the evidence. Let me see another miracle. Lay out all your rational arguments. But I don't care. I don't want Jesus mucking up the good thing I've got going on here. I could read you a number of texts to make this case. I'll just read to you perhaps the simplest. John 3.19 says this. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Do you hear what he's getting at in that text? It is not an issue. Romans 1 would make this especially plain. It is not an issue of light. People see the light. They just don't love it. They just don't want it. They loved the darkness rather than the light. The issue isn't knowledge, logic, reasoning. It's desire. What Romans 1 would say, the lusts of the heart. Now, if you're feeling encouraged, uh, let's move on. <laughs> this is what Jesus in love is taking on as he engages these, these, these men in this crowd. He's attempting to show them the irrationality, the foolishness of their position, and thereby move them towards faith in him. Really, he's trying to bring them and us towards the conclusion of verse 20. He puts it there in verse 20 for us plainly. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He is saying, let's follow the logic. If it doesn't make sense for Satan to be divided against Satan, for Satan to be killing Satan, well then what it means is that the finger of God is what you just witnessed. And the kingdom of God is on the move in your midst here today. what it means his reference to the finger of God is one of particular significance 
especially when you consider the Old Testament. It shows up a handful of places, no pun intended, but the, probably the most important one would be in Exodus um, 8.19. I wanted you to see this. I think Jesus is probably alluding to this scene here when he's talking about the finger of God. Exodus 8.19, just background there, God is moving to free his people from bondage uh, in Egypt to Pharaoh. Okay, the plagues have begun. And what we found is plague number one, plague number two, the Egyptian magicians with their secret dark arts, I don't know how they were able to do this exactly, probably by demons for sure, uh, were able to imitate or mimic what uh, Yahweh through Moses was doing. But then uh, plague three comes around and it's the gnats and nobody likes gnats. And I guess the Egyptian magicians could not imitate what they had done. The gnats covering everything, uh, land and beast. And these magicians go, gosh, we can't, we can't make this happen. We can't get this going. And they come to Pharaoh, Exodus 8.19, and they say this, this is the finger of God. It's nothing we know about. We can't do it. It's basically his, their way of saying, you better take Yahweh seriously, Pharaoh. Because we don't know where this kind of power is coming from. But then the verse continues. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them. I don't care. It may be logical, but I don't care. The parallels are actually astounding um, because when we look at our text, we see what Jesus is alluding to. Jesus is the new and, and, and greater Exodus. That's what he's come to deliver for his people. He's Relieving us, rescuing us from bondage to a stronger Pharaoh, so to speak, a stronger house of slavery. The strong man, as he's uh, spoken of in our text, Satan. Jesus will be our Passover lamb. I mean, that's how ultimately Pharaoh finally decides to, you know, uh, push the people out. The Passover lamb, the killing of the firstborn, and the lamb that stood over the doorposts of the people of Israel so that the judgment of God didn't befall them for their sin, but instead they got his mercy and his rescue and his redemption and grace. Jesus is the lamb. This is the rescue. I mean, we're about to, as you kind of move forward in the Gospels, Jesus is on his way to the cross where the demons will be howling around his lifeless body as it hung there. The strong man, Satan, will have thought he won when they put him behind the stone in the tomb. But then the stronger man will prove himself on day three. When he rises again from the dead, victorious over Satan, sin and death, come to rescue a greater exodus, the finger of God. The kingdom of God is in your midst, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's the picture here with this brother just being, being, being freed from bondage by this demon. 
But as I already mentioned, in this text back in Exodus 8.19, there's another connection as well, right? Not just the idea that Jesus has come to uh, uh, bring us a new and greater exodus and rescue us from bondage, but the reality that there will be people looking in and seeing all these things and go, I don't care. Like Pharaoh, I mean, the crazy thing is, is that the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus is saying, are on the side with Pharaoh and Egypt in this exchange. Because they are crossing their arms, stepping back. I don't care. I know what I saw. Must have been the devil. I'm not about to bend my knee to this guy. This is why I think Jesus goes where he goes next in verses 24 to 28, because we have a decision to make. There are going to be some who see and experience his his grace, his mercy, and they respond with faith. They soften to him. And there are going to be others who harden and they get further away from the truth. They descend deeper into foolishness. I'm going to move quickly through this last one in case you're worried. But verses 24 to 28, the requirement of a decision, the requirement now of a decision. Look in particular at verses 24 to 26. Those are the ones I want to read here. When the unclean spirit, Jesus is telling a story now about what happens when this demon goes. When a work of God uh, uh, takes place in a man's life. And he's kind of getting at this idea that we need to respond appropriately. We need to make a decision here. But here's what he says. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse Then the first two things I'm going to bring out as we close. I think Jesus is saying here, trying to get at at least two things. The first is this. You and I need more than a spring cleaning. I think the point of this story, part of it is to say, you and I need more than a spring cleaning. I mean, your houses need a spring cleaning. Mine does. We just saw a cobweb forming uh, uh, next to the blender. <laughs> I was like, oh, we need to spring clean now. I don't know what season is it. Fall clean. We got to get this going. But Jesus is saying here, we need more than that. He's saying, here's what's going to happen. There are going to be people who I work a little bit in their life. They experience, kind of like Hebrews 6 would talk about, they experience something of the grace, the power of the age to come. God comes in, does something for them in grace, in mercy. The kingdom is present. They see, they experience, they come to know, whatever it is. But then they don't fully open themselves to him. They just kind of say, thank you very much. That was nice. I needed a little cleaning. Needed a little boost. Little help. Now I'll go on my way. Thank you. And he says, you better watch out. I send out that demon. This man didn't fill it with anything else. He didn't fill it with me. And because of that, the last state will be worse than the first. There is no neutrality here. You are either moving towards Jesus and towards his image and glory, or you're moving towards the devil, towards his image and depravity, hardness. Hardness. 
to put another kind of shift of metaphors for you, um, I'm not a tech guy. I know I live in the land of, of tech. Um, it's kind of like the mecca of the tech world here, I think. I have no skill, no savvy in this. Uh, let me tell you my go-to when, um, hopefully some of you are like this with me. <laughs> but if something goes wrong with one of my now various devices, uh, I, I have no clue what to do. I don't know how to go in the back end. I don't know any slick tricks. You want to know what my, my go-to uh, fix is? What? Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't hear the on-off button, man. This is this is this is my strategy. All right, off. For some reason, I feel like I'm supposed to hold it for a couple seconds too, like let it stay off for a couple seconds, like it needs a break. One, two, three, count to ten. On. I kid you not. It's like Jesus knew I, I, I needed this illustration. I was already working it into my my manuscript. This happened to me twice in the last couple of days, where my all of a sudden my phone wasn't connecting to the internet, or then my 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 printer was wrong, and I kept trying. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not gonna be able to print the bulletins. And I was like, wait, the sermon illustration. That's right. On, off, bam. I was like, this is amazing. But here's why I, I bring this up. Oftentimes, that's the way we approach our life. That's the way we approach our problems. That's the way we approach our need for Jesus. We kind of think that, okay, listen, things have gone a little awry. That's true. As of late, stuff's not looking so good. I need a little help. I've fallen on some hard times. I need from Jesus a good reboot. I don't need to be remade. I don't need to be remodeled. I don't need to trash this and go get something new. No, 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 I'm fine just the way that I am. Just turn me off and then turn me back on. Give me a reboot. But what Jesus is saying here is we do not just need a reboot. We need a rebirth. It's not just, hey, give me a little help and then I'll be on my way. It's, I need you. Another way of putting it. I don't just need spring cleaning. I need a new master of the house. That's what he's getting at. That's the image he's using. I don't just need a little spring cleaning and then I've got this. I need a new master of the house or I am laid open to whatever influences may be out there and they're not good if they're not from Christ. So the idea then is, is that we, 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 we see our great need. And this leads kind of to the, um, the last thing that I think Jesus is bringing out, at least that I wanted to point out, the second thing here, and that is this. You... Have a decision to make. When Jesus is telling this story, I assume what he's meaning is, is you have a decision to make. You have just seen the work of the kingdom of God in your midst. What are you going to do about it? Or you're, if, if you're this brother who the demon was actually expelled from, you experience it. What are you going to do next? Are you going to open up to him or not? Here's the reality. When you come into contact with Jesus, there is not a fork in the road. It's not like you can keep going down the middle the way things were. You need to see that. It's a why in the road. There's no kind of, oh, I'll just kind of keep going the way that it was. No, you have to make a decision. I think that's what he's saying. What's it going to be? One way is going to lead to worse. 
You may feel better now because you just got that demon removed from you. You feel like you can handle it. I'm telling you, you need me to come take up residence in you to rework you from the inside up, change the heart. All that desire stuff we were talking about, all the lusts, all that junk, you need me to take that. It's either going to get worse or it's going to get awesome. But there's no, ah, I'll keep kind of holding on and waiting and we'll see and we'll see. No, I told you. What happens is, is slowly Jesus stops talking. Slowly he stops working. I really think to end here, this is what Jesus is after when this woman interrupts him in the last verses of our text. There's a lot you could say about this, but I think it really just provides another opportunity for him to say, to get at this point. She interrupts and kind of says, blessed is your mom, Jesus. Wow, you are amazing. And she must have been awesome. But he looks and he just says this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But blessed are those who hear what I'm saying here and act on it. There's a why in the road. You want genuine blessing. Make a decision to open up for me. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, saving grace. The work of your spirit in our lives. The kingdom that's come. The finger of God that's touched us. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who maybe are looking in the mirror going, how did it come to this? How do I look like this? What is the deal? Lord, I pray that you would move in these moments. I pray they'd make a decision for you. That they'd open their heart to you. That they'd repent. That they'd turn from the foolishness of these things to you and your wisdom. But I pray for people perhaps that aren't even following you, that are still holding on saying, I need more evidence. But I pray I pray that you'd show them they have enough and that they have a great need for your rescuing work. In Jesus' name, amen.